Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our fans and listeners, especially those who took the time to write us a review. This one comes from Christiani Joy, titled Great Information and Inspiration. This is a great podcast with a wealth of information from a variety of guests. From informative to inspirational, this podcast has it all. I very much enjoy listening to it. Well, thank you so much, Christiani Joy, or maybe it's Christian A. Joy. Either way, thank you so much for your five-star rating and review. We really appreciate you. Glenn Kirkpatrick is a three-time, 35-year cancer survivor living with late effects of radiation and chemotherapy. He enjoys sharing what he's learned about how to persevere in life the importance of finding joy in each day, and the significance of living in the moment. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. So 35 years before I hit record, you told me you've been living this for more than half your life. So would you please take us back to the very, very beginning? When did this start? In June of 1987. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. That followed a lump appearing in my neck, labs, diagnostic surgery, and then received the news that it was cancer. Did you notice the lump? Did someone else? Did you have any other symptoms? I was working as a police officer undercover at the time. Why do I mention that? Wow. Wait, what? That is so cool. Okay, well, I'll, I'll touch on it again. Yeah. <laughs> so I wasn't required to shave every day, and I, I didn't. So it was literally standing up at home, looking in the mirror, and right at my neck, on the right side was a picture, partial golf ball kind of protruding. Of course, great concern. I was having fatigue, too, yet... I had just blamed it on working, working overtime, working a lot of hours. Well, it didn't take long. There was no hesitation. Deb and I decided, my wife, Debbie, let's get to the doctor, and then went from there. Had you not noticed it prior, like you said, because you weren't shaving it every day and and just hadn't noticed it? Because, I mean, for it to get to be the size of a golf ball is pretty significant. Well, perhaps, I'll never know, is that, it didn't just appear uh, that morning, right. so sure. How, how long had it been growing to where it became this uh, bump, right. I guess you'd say. Yeah. How long from the time you noticed it did you get the diagnosis? It was a couple of weeks as um, the doctors checked checked for many things, you know, um, with all the diagnostic tests and lab results, yeah, then the doctor said it was um, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And yet, 
I learned back then. The way they stage it, I had a laparotomy where they, they cut you open, take out your spleen, they look all around at your lymph nodes. And that was, so it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage 3A. Did they take out your spleen because it had spread there? Um, that's, I'll, I'll call it old school. I understand they don't do it today, but back then with medicine, a little uncanny. So it's the spleen's removed to see if there was cancer present. But either way, you just lost your spleen and there what? was no cancer present in my spleen. That is crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know they did that. Oh, yeah. okay. So crazy. And they, did they remove the lump as well? So they had a biopsy right there. Perhaps some was removed and then radiation took care of the rest. And I know that time, but can you describe for people back in the late eighties, what was radiation like for lymphoma? Well, my experience and I, I started out very hopeful and I learned I was to have 50 treatments. I kind of can't believe it now. And I drove myself to a center and a very wonderful technician. Well, what it was like is gradually you become, your skin becomes, it's painful to the touch, red, sunburn, like a sunburn. And then uh, symptoms got worse over time to include nausea. I lost my sense of taste. And then you just feel bad. You just feel bad. And for people listening, I just want to point out that you are Scottish. You're quite pale, which, <laughs> I mean, you know, radiation. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to have a significant more impact on you than per perhaps someone else. So 50 radiation treatments, was that over what, a 10 week period? Were you doing five days a week? Right about there, 10 or 12, because... I recall there was a, like a two-week break. I guess that lets your body sort of recover to a point. The break was welcome. So, yeah, 10 to 12 weeks. Okay. And you mentioned that you were married. Did you have children yet? Yes. Our Russell, our oldest, well, that was our only son then. And he was just like two. So he's only known his dad having had cancer pretty much <laughs> yes exactly i didn't mean and, to be grim about it but it just you know what i mean oh i didn't i didn't take it as as grim okay. and much time and life experiences happen to where i see my experiences where they've been with my sons uh witness to and in support of their mom that it's it's been character building and how many children do you have? Uh, three adult sons. All sons, all boys. Yeah. Yeah. So you finished the radiation. Was there any other treatment? Had Did they declare you cancer-free? That, that was the treatment. I did eat better. What do you mean you ate diet. better? So what were you eating before compared to how, what did you change in your diet? Oh, let's just say I ate everything. My weight was always managed, so I just was active enough. I was more, more aware of 
of eating, right? So there's more that I would cut out things, but also, so breakfast, um, I love oatmeal anyway. Toast, raisins, the whole thing. I could just eat that. I eat most, most everything. Um, so the 50, yeah, the 50 radiation treatments. And then in November of 87, I was deemed to be in remission. Okay. And uh, we celebrated Debbie and I for sure. Given that you had radiation, and I realized it was to your neck and chest area, but was there any concern that you might become sterile and you wouldn't be able to have more children? Medically, perhaps. I don't recall that at all. And maybe you could imagine that with everything being, call it a whirlwind, right. and me wanting to be informed, I, I'll ask my wife. She remembers everything, which is, can be helpful. I do recall now that we went to a sperm bank, set that aside, and then just moved on with our lives. I recall Debbie wasn't sure if she'd get pregnant again. And she did. And so in 1989, our middle son was born, which was terrific. So she got pregnant right away, relatively speaking. So how many years were you cancer-free? Uh, less than two years. Less than two? Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So tell us what happened the second time. I'll start with the wonderful part where remission, we celebrate. We went to concerts, went to Cancun, and just really, you know, like a new beginning. Yeah, remission. Still, I was unsettled and never the same. I don't know that anybody is. In that I decided I didn't want to be around our house anymore. Nothing wrong with it. But I spent hours and lonely hours of recovering from surgery, radiation. Everything reminded me of what just happened. So Deb agreed, and we moved. We moved to San Diego, started over. Can't really start over. But we moved out of L.A. from that house. And I transferred to Escondido Police Department down here in San Diego. I was working. That was new. I had plenty of experience, but it was a new environment. I grew fatigued, very fatigued. And in my mind, it's like, oh, it's back. Were you getting regular screenings? You know, would you touch your own neck, you know, kind of check for lumps? Was any of that going on? Yes. Uh, me checking myself. And I believe it was more after having the first experience. I knew based on energy level, the fatigue grew, grew you know, profound. So went to the oncologist, this time a new one in Escondido, and uh, bone marrow biopsy, and yes, well, Hodgkin's lymphoma is back. We were just this side of crushed. Right. And... and uh, at that point, did they know where it was? Did they know if it was at spread? Um, let's see. I was prescribed chemotherapy. Where exactly was it? Oh. I should know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember exactly. Well, tell us about the chemotherapy. The chemotherapy was prescribed, made sense. I had um, outpatient you know, drove myself to the doctor, had it, drove home. That's 
that was an adventure. Um, and how, as, how uh, often did you have the chemotherapy? Three times a week for several several months. Wow. Um, so as I had more and more treatments, and as my mental health began to be challenged, I grew very depressed. I thought, and it said to myself, this time I will die. And that was a false belief that the chemotherapy was, this is my false belief, was given to folks that were going to die anyway of cancer, but it would give them some more time. In my case, nobody told me that. But back so in LA, you, when I was. So, where do you think mm -hmm. that belief came from? If no one said that yeah, to you, yeah, where'd, you, where'd yeah. it come from? Believe it or not, I know exactly. During the radiation, I, I went to a support group where we met other folks undergoing can cancer treatment. And there was a gentleman who was there, very sick, talked about all the morphine he gets to take home. And then six meetings that followed, he wasn't there anymore. And I think we learned that he, he passed. So when I learned I'm prescribed chemotherapy, yeah, that started to settle in. I didn't realize it at first. And so I grew, I grew very depressed. Why did you think that his experience would be your experience? Wonderful question. I think that I don't know. It was face value. I was already in a, a state of, oh my gosh, a second cancer, same one. Yeah. Had beat it before. Here it is. So. Did you share that fear with your wife? Oh, yes. We, we communicate really well. A lot of our experience, I realize. We've been pressed where, where we hadn't maybe, we had communicated, but the depth, it gets deeper over time because we, we must. Right. And the, and the fun things too. And with parenting, I'm just saying. So um, I, I saw several counselors and psychiatrists began antidepressants. The depression was diagnosed as a major depressive episode. It turned out to be drug resistant. So none of the drugs helped me and my depression was severe. I had suicidal thoughts. I had one unsuccessful attempt. And that's not me. When I tell this story, I know now it's part of my life, but it's not you know, me when I'm well. It wasn't then and now. So what how, happened there? How old were your boys at that time? When you made that attempt, they were still quite sure. young. Yeah, let's see. Our middle son, maybe a year and a half. Russell, three and a half or four. And um, one thing led to another, some great input from someone we knew in the medical field, but not one of the psychiatrists, told Debbie of electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. And the condition I was in is I didn't make this like wise decision. Let's do that. Let's compare it to here or there. I just complied. Debbie took me to the hospital. I had the treatment, several sessions. I don't know how many, but I, I woke up is what I call it, like an awakening. I, it completely lifted. 
Did it so really? Completely lifted. And I began to feel myself, and of course, Debbie and everybody around me saw it and enjoyed it. I'm so glad it worked for you. It's a fact, part of my life, and yet it's a little bewildering when I, I think about it. Chiefly, though, it was effective. I was released. Um, Deb and I and the boys got to be to, together over time. I regained my mental health and my physical, physical health. And so were you declared in remission again for a second time? Yes. Uh, the news of remission, I was still depressed. So for me, anyway, that tempered the news like I didn't have a full appreciation of it, let's say. Sure. But following that was the help I got, the ECT, the remission. So now I had both, you know, strong. So when did the third incidence occur? That was less than two years later, a year and a half. <laughs> I was diagnosed with chronic lymphocyte leukemia, CLL. And again, what led up to that sense that there was something wrong with cancer is this fatigue that grew stronger and stronger. This all happened in your 30s, every one of these. Am I tracking correctly? Yes, ma'am. Wow. So can you describe, Glenn, for us, when you say fatigue, just so people really understand, what was that like for you? Because that, that second, third time, I mean, you really knew something was wrong. So when you say fatigue, how did that show up for you? If I could mention what it looked like for CLL is that it's tangible. So I, I would ride my bike for exercise. I used to ride, race, road bicycles. So I would, I would be riding on my days off or before my shift. And over time, I could do fewer miles. And then they were a slower speed and fewer miles. And I would describe it as it grew to where everything's a great push. It takes an extreme amount of effort, not just in cycling because, you know, helping with the kids or just life. So extreme, profound, chronic, couldn't do anything to reclaim the energy. It wasn't that I did you stayed up too late? Yeah. Did you ever feel rested after sleeping, after napping? Did you ever wake up and go, okay, no. finally I feel rested? I don't recall ever wow. ever being rested. I I wanted to work as long as I could for the police department while I had CLL. And they were open to that. However, it grew to be I couldn't work my shift. It wouldn't be a, a safe for me to be out there working in patrol. Right. But I work, I work light duty in the station, so that kept our income, all our benefits. But over time, I mean, over a year, when remission didn't come, and that was still my health issue, I retired wow. and stopped working. What was the treatment for CLL? There, were, there was no protocol in the U.S. There was no protocol in the U.S. that I wow. could find or those who helped me. Those who helped me included an uncle that had a connection at Stanford University. So it grew to be a point where we just stopped searching. It, it was stressful and exhaustive to look, but we did quite a bit. When I say we, 
need to have you help. So quickly, one thing led to another where a friend referred us to a nutritionist, nothing to lose, went down to Tijuana, Mexico. So um, we opted for the treatment, as expensive as it was. Deb and I began to agree on the way back over the border that we had to do it. How are we going to pay for it? We don't know. Yeah. Okay. And that treatment was two weeks inpatient and then months and months outpatient. And basically, he called it a form of chemotherapy. But picture all natural elements, vitamin supplements. And you're having to go to Mexico. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, you're in San Diego, so it's not the worst drive in the world. But um, but still having to make that truck down there. How did you raise the money? We We received money through our church and from the police department I worked for. And actually... Amazing, the one that I left. I hadn't been there. That's I hadn't amazing. been gone from Manhattan Beach too long. The When I say the police department, so their police officers association, they shared the church fared a new church we were actually part of after some of this earlier trouble. So it was all, it was all covered. There wasn't a money worry for... I mean, this was all yeah. before GoFundMe. I just want to put it in perspective for people, <laughs> right? You know, this was yeah. this is what mid early mid nineties at this point. Yeah, I mean, people... yeah, ni- yeah, ninety, yeah, ninety one to ninety six. I had the CLL. So, um, whoa, whoa, whoa! Time... You had CLL for five years. Yes. Wow. So, were you in and out of treatment for five years? Oh, good point. So the over time, because of the expense and I didn't go in remission, although I believe it must have been helpful in ways. I stopped the outpatient treatment, which is basically taking loads of um, the supplements, we'll call it, on your own with occasional checkup down in Mexico. Okay. So I just continued with the challenge of the fatigue. And I guess Deb and I thought we just had to live with it. We'd already researched. So what changed? What changed that caused you to go into remission? Did you finally, did you find that clinical trial where they finally, you know, what what happened? What happened was, as I continued to be just living in this level of fatigue. Yeah. uh, Probably, probably my medical insurance changed. So I'm seeing a new oncologist. And he's doing the labs and we're talking. And he says, you, you don't have chronic lymphocyte leukemia anymore. You don't, the labs, it's not present. So I'm struggling to believe him and say, then why am I still so tired? Right. He said, you have an underactive thyroid, hypothyroidism, and he could prescribe a medicine that will help. And so I began on that medicine and I'm still on it today and it it helped to a measure are we talking about thyroid replacement hormone yeah yeah. okay my thyroid was removed when i was 23 so i'm your girl if you have any questions yeah (laughs) try to oh oh, yeah (laughs) um do you does did your doctor think because because it is far less common in men than women any thyroid disease did he think perhaps that the hypothyroidism was caused 
by those earlier treatments that you had? Radiation. Yeah. It's the culprit. And if time permitting, it's been the culprit to radiation fibrosis to my heart and other other parts. What is what is radiation fibrosis? What has that done to your heart exactly? It stiffens organs and tissue. That'd be a layman's. Yeah, no, that's perfect. So, so what does that do? I mean, does that prevent your heart from working as well? uh, Correct. And in me, and it's not unique as I'm part of a Facebook group of many Hodgkin survivors, but, and then I do reading for me, my experience over time. And I, I wouldn't know it. Deb and I wouldn't know it, but fast forward to late 2000s. And a doctor diagnosed me with a heart murmur. I thought my heart was the one thing that was still <laughs> untouched and okay. But what did that lead to? I was diagnosed with um, heart valve disease, both the aortic and mitral valve. Really? Um, the radiation fibrosis caused a calcium buildup where the valve opening is the size it's supposed to be. Picture it shrinking because... Because it's like calcified. Cor- corroded pipe. That, yeah. And it can grow to be where it's severe calcification and you can have sudden death. I've had both valves replaced, open heart surgery. Wow. And that's, again, just to say it's a little bewildering. The most recent, the mitral valve I had replaced a year ago, May. And again, very successful surgery. Grateful. To God, grateful to the doctors and my wife's obviously elated. And yeah, but open heart surgery, big deal. And I can't even imagine doing it during COVID. Oh my gosh. Was your wife able to be there with you? She was able to visit. I think what was happening with Sharp Memorial here and the way they were very careful in monitoring things. Yeah, there were periods where there was no visitors. Then there was yeah. other period where it could be one or two in a day. So yeah, between Debbie, one of my sons, and our daughter-in-law, who's a nurse there, she could just pop in anytime. Yeah, I was, that would have been hard on her. And and me in a different way that I couldn't have any visitors, but. And with the thyroid replacement hormone, again, having experienced myself, is your thyroid being monitored regularly? Are you seeing an endocrinologist? Has the fatigue gotten better? Um, Has it got any better? Well, here's the thing that's tough. I know you can appreciate this. So along the way, uh, diagnosed with chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, and then with other things I've been through, I I don't, you know, there's layers. I, I, if it was only the thyroid, maybe it'd be easier to go, okay, medicine working, medicine not working. Yeah. But your question is good because now I'm I'm going to ask my new primary, she's great. What would be reasonable or the best follow-up for just that you know that issue of the thyroid? So Glenn, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. What was your worst moment in all of those cancer experiences? If you could only pick one, what was the worst moment? 
the depression, the suicidal thoughts, and the unsuccessful attempt. And what about the best moment? The news of remission and the, the thought of a, an actual new beginning and then what followed, time with Debbie, the kids, and life, you know, living, yeah. And Glenn, your first diagnosis was in 87. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? To learn or appreciate the importance of relationships, family, and friends. You know, and then go share out that burden with them to to uh, to seek God, which I didn't believe in when I was young. When did that change? Toward the um, end of the chemo, while depressed, and that whole... Deb was being reached out to and loved up on, and it helped her spiritually and her mental health. She began attending the church. She didn't want to leave me alone. And I began to just kind of go along again. <laughs> Did you? Mind. I wasn't in my right mind. Yeah, I just. I love it. It's it's honest. So she's amazing. And so really turned the corner for me in a new faith was. After release from the hospital, it, it was where I was able to decide, discern and ask questions that led to uh, Bible study and. Deb and I were each baptized in early 90. So. That's wonderful. Yeah. Glenn, if you could only do one thing to improve health care in the U.S., what would it be and why? Accessible to all, perhaps even free with a, a system that's set up where that could happen. One little item I was thinking about, how do you put it in words, that maybe some of this happens where Doctors, as part of their medical training, they are um, with patients listening, mm -hmm. listening to their stories, whether that's in person or via Zoom, and to set them up more for success for when they are then in practice or at a hospital, a patient presents them with something, maybe they've already had some compassion or a greater listening ear. I don't know, does that happen now? Maybe that happens now. I think it's training. starting to. Yeah, it's they're starting to. It, I know a neurosurgeon who specializes in glioblastoma, and, and I always thought he put it so well. He said, in medical school, you learn the science of being a doctor. And he said, afterwards, when you start treating patients is when you learn the art. And that's for the rest of your career. Every day, you're learning on the job. You're learning the art of being a doctor. And I think what a lot of doctors don't realize, even though they do a residency, is they're not people, people. And if you're treating patients, if you're a clinician, <laughs> you do need to learn how to deal with people of all, of all mm -hmm. types, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and those doctors who don't have any bedside manner, but who are brilliant, I just want to say to them, please go do research. You know, go to a lab, go to research. You're brilliant. Don't waste your mind. But maybe, maybe you shouldn't be working with people. I'm just saying, maybe. Good. That's good. That's um, good. All right, Glenn, are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Yes. 
Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beach Boys. <laughs> what is one word that best describes you? Outlier. My I like nickname. that. Oh, I like it. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Amazing Grace. Any particular version? Uh, no. I mean, different artists I like, but no. What about the last meal you want to eat? Debbie's homemade chicken cacciatore. Oh, that sounds good. It is. <laughs> <laughs> the last person or people you want to see? Oh, my wife and kids, grandkids, and my father is still alive. Yeah. And how many grandkids do you have? Three. Three, yeah. Wow. And the last words you will speak. I love you too. Who's present? Yeah. And aside from cancer, you, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Hodgkin's International. They can be found on Facebook, the internet, Hodgkin's International. First for me, I'm on Facebook, uh, my name. So if somebody put in the search box, Glenn Kirkpatrick, G.D. Kirkpatrick. Uh, we have a, a book that Deb and I wrote and published. If I can mention that. Yeah, and we'll put a link to it as well. What's the name of the book? Okay, it is Overcome, A Story of Intervention, Rescue, and Redemption, Our Cancer Survivorship Journey, and that's on Amazon. All right, so we so, will yeah. put links to everything in the workshop in the show notes. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your remarkable story. Thank you, Andrea or an Andrea. I answer to both. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.